And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. We're in it now, the new year, 2024. The Bridge begins its latest broadcast with this, an analysis of the world situation, Ukraine, Middle East, and what we're missing with Dr. Janice Stein. Coming right up. Hello there. Welcome to 2024. Hope you had a uh, hope you had a good holiday season. Had a chance to be uh, with family. Take it easy. Take a break. Some of you I know worked over the holidays, and uh, well, thank you for doing that. Okay, so what are we going to do with our uh, first episode? Well, first, first we're going to kind of explain how things are going to be a little different with the bridge heading forward. I've hinted at this a number of times over the, uh, the weeks before the holidays, and I just want to make it straight now for you. Signed a new contract with Sirius um, XM. Great people. Enjoy working with them. Uh, they have a live version of the bridge at noon Eastern every day. It's replayed a couple of times during their broadcast schedule. And what we've done before is Monday to Friday uh, on the bridge, we're going to continue on, but four days a week instead of five. You know, the old guy's getting older. Need a few breaks here and there. So there was a number of ways of doing this. We could either take Mondays off or we could take Fridays off. But I thought no, because we'll do it at kind of in sync with Bruce's decision to, uh, to back off from the uh, Wednesday smoke mirrors and the truth. He's just too busy. I mean, the guy's got, the guy's got a lot of work on his plate. And it was getting harder and harder to find him wherever he was in different places in the country and the world, for that matter, uh, to do Wednesdays. So he, after three years, um, he's just going to do Fridays now with uh, Chantel on Good Talk. So what I decided was Wednesdays. Wednesdays will become this option day. It'll become a best of day or, you know, if there's some kind of special moment happening uh, during the week, we can always... Uh, make a decision to do a, a new show on Wednesdays. But there'll always be a bridge episode on Wednesday, but it could we could go back a year, two years, three years, uh, and do a best-of edition. Sometimes it's kind of fun to listen to those uh, well after the fact. Anyway, Mondays will be um, um, going forward. It's going to be uh, Janice Stein. Uh, her programs have been extremely popular with us. Uh, over these uh, last few months, and they will continue, I'm sure, to be so, and you'll hear the first episode coming up. I know, yeah, I know it's Tuesday, but my, yesterday uh, was a holiday. So Mondays will be Dr. Janice Stein. Tuesdays will be a feature of some sort. It may be a feature interview. It may be a feature discussion, you know, like the, um, um, the, the uh, Moore Butts conversations. Those will be still on their agenda kind of once a month. Those discussions with uh, uh, Jerry Butts and uh, James Moore. Um, so those will be uh, Tuesdays um, to have some kind of feature discussion or feature interview, or it just may it may be a feature uh, look at an end bit because uh, we always have lots of those. Wednesdays, as I said, will be a encore edition. Thursdays will be a new version of Your Turn um, and. The Random Ranter, of course. Um, plus, we'll, we're, we're going to kind of include a contest um, each week for the best 
the best letter, the best your turn. And uh, the winner will get um, a copy of one of my books, signed copy and sent to them. So that, that'll be Thursdays, Fridays, of course, good talk. How are the things going to be different on the your turn? Well, here's what I was thinking. We'll try it for a while. I'm going to pose a question early in the, que- in the week, and I'll pose it today um, for this week. And I'll um, read all the letters that come in and pick the past, I don't know, three or four of those letters um, to, to read on the program. Here's the question for this week. As I know a lot of you get at this every once in a while in your letters anyway. If you were able to change anything about the Canadian political system, what would that change be? And I'm not looking for, oh, you know, so-and-so should quit or so-and-so should be replaced. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for something, you know, significant, as far as you're concerned, in terms of the system itself and how it could be best serving us if it changed in some, you know, significant way. So what would that change be? You know, is it some form, and you'd have to be specific, about electoral reform? Would it be something about question period? Would it be something about cabinet responsibility or accountability but you got to be specific can't just say that okay and here's the here's the clincher that'll make it into the onto the air it can't be two three four pages long some of you love to write and i love to read but there's only so much room right so get to your point make it explain it and say goodbye all right you do all that in a paragraph Two at the most. Normal paragraphs. (laughs) So anyway, give it a whirl. Let's give that a try. So the first question for this week, so it's two days, you got to get at it right now, is if you had the ability to change anything about our political system, what would that change be? And, you know... Don't limit it to the, uh, the examples I gave. There's, you know, there's tons of them. Voting age, this, that, the other. It's all kinds of stuff. All right? So look for one thing. Not two things. Not three things. Not here are my best 15 ideas. Pick one. Give me your best idea. And let's, uh, let's have that little, that little contest. So each week we'll do something. Okay? And it'll in somehow be related I hope, to that week's news. So starting off this way simply because here we are in the first week of January and people are still sort of getting over the last couple of weeks. So there you go. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's where to write. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. I'll go through it. We'll pick a small selection and then we'll pick a winner out of those. And the winner gets, if they want it, they get one of my books. Okay? So, um, and I'll sign it and ship it off to you. We got the winner of the Christmas Memories um, contest. She wrote uh, in a very nice note. Just, uh, well, in fact, it, it arrived just overnight. Thanking, uh, thanking us very much for 
the contest and the fact that uh, she was a winner, Cindy Kelly. Uh, Cindy Kelly's in uh, British Columbia. So she was pretty happy to get her copy, her signed copy of, uh, on her case, How Canada Works. Okay, enough already. Um, let's get to today's program. And she made such a mark on this program and with you throughout the fall and trying to deal with mainly with the uh, Middle East story, but also Ukraine. So today we start off uh, with Dr. Janice Stein, University of Toronto, Monk School, Middle East analyst, conflict management expert, um, somebody who has worked with and worked for uh, governments and institutions literally around the world. And uh, we're very proud and happy to have uh, Janice with us. So uh, let's get right at it. This is uh, Janice's kind of worldview of things right now um, as a new year begins and uh, as we get the opportunity to try and understand what that new world is going to be like. So here we go. My conversation with Dr. Janice Stein. Well, Janice, ever since October 7th, the, uh, the fear has been that this was going to spread to a wider war. Well, we're almost three months in, and some of those fears seem to be realized now, as we've just you know, witnessed in the last little, little while, Israel uh, uh, doing an attack in Syria, the U.S. Um, attacking the Houthis in the Red Sea, and thinking aloud about perhaps attacking them in Yemen. We've got... Uh, um, Iran making noises. You've got Hezbollah making noises, uh, and more than just noises in the uh, along the northern border with Israel. Um, have we have we now reached that point where we have a wider war? So, for sure, this is a hold your breath moment, Peter. You're absolutely right. The danger's higher than it's been, but I don't think that we have reach the the point where we're going to go over the edge probably four or five different ways we could go over the edge Um, if you think about the map of the middle east just to the north of israel is lebanon and that's one that almost did go over the edge uh, at the beginning of the war because hezbollah is right up against the israeli border caught 150,000 missiles, by far uh, a much greater threat uh, than Hamas posed. And Israel got ambiguous intelligence right at the beginning of the war that they were planning to join an attack. And it's really interesting. This is now leaked from several sources. President Biden got on the phone and walk them back from a preemptive attack, which is what they were thinking of doing. Um, so we, we we dodged a bullet right at the beginning of this. Biden now has an, uh, a special envoy in the region, Adam Hothschild, and he is going back and forth trying to work out a deal where Hezbollah pulls its forces back from the border to the Latani River. That would be consistent with the UN resolution. I don't know if he'll get them all the way back, but if he gets them even somewhat removed directly from the border, 
um, then I think that situation will stabilize. Well, so that's one big one. Right. That's one big one. And, and it's been a constant from almost since day one, as you, as you mentioned. But all these other kind of hotspots that are starting to develop, uh, which could turn this into, you know, a, a much wider war. Why is that happening now? We have to see this as kind of loose network, Peter, and the two hotspots are in the Gulf region. You know, right at the bottom of the Red Sea um, are the Houthis in Yemen. They have a choke point. Um, it's very easy to lob missiles and to send out uh, patrol boats to block access to shipping. And they, they've been... Those attacks have been increasing. They're not trivial for the whole global economy, frankly. Uh, We don't think about this, Peter, but 30% of container shipping in all global trade still goes through the Suez Canal. 30%. Uh, You know, we've been fighting inflation for a year. Just think. So the insurance companies got involved They said, we're not going to insure, send your ships around the Cape of Good Hope, (laughs) add a month of travel, and these are dangerous waters, and the insurance prices went up, Um, and so there is is a lot of unhappiness globally um, with the Houthis raising the costs for everybody. Well, as you said, it came to a head. Um, they attacked the Maersk ship. Um, it escalated. U.S. helicopters flew in um, to protect, and Houthis fired on the U.S. helicopters. And then the U.S. fired back and killed the Houthis. Now, that's the test. That's the hold your breath moment. What do they do next? It's up to the Houthis, right? Do they back off just a little bit? Iran's fingerprints are, frankly, all over this one because they are the ones who are providing the targeting information to the Houthis. So this is one case where the Iranians clearly can cool this down. It's going to tell us a lot. Watch this part of the world in the next 24 to 72 hours. Um, If the Houthis pull back, dial it back a little bit, then we won't have the escalation. The other one that you've mentioned, you're right, um, is just a little bit over in um, Iraq, where there are U.S. military deployed, have been deployed ever since 2003. The Houthis have also launched missile attacks against U.S. forces, and that's always a dangerous game, frankly. You do it, you do it, you do it, and, and you infuriate. Um, particularly the Pentagon, frankly, um, and they, they've got to be they've got to be careful, the Americans, right now on that situation because the Iraqis want the Americans out, right? They're saying that's close right. your bases and get out of town here. That's um, right. So you, because you, those bases are threatened to pull them in in a way they don't want to be pulled in, the Iraqis. Well, there's a so, lot of attempts to pull people in, right? The the Houthis, they, uh, I mean. Uh, the Houthis have been in this long war up until just a, not long ago with Saudi Arabia, yeah, um, uh, with Yemen and 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 the Saudis. Uh, it's a, in a kind of ceasefire 
moment now, but clearly somebody's trying to get the Saudis back in. And we know why, because the Saudis are on the verge of making a deal with the Israelis. That's right. That's so right. They, all these things are connected. They are. That's why I'm saying you have to see it as a network rather than as isolated hotspots, frankly. And, you know, irony of ironies, why hasn't the United States gotten back in? Because the Saudis don't want to get back in. So the Saudis are acting as a restraining force on the U.S. response now. Who would have thought of that five or seven years ago when the Saudis were saying the Americans aren't reliable, they won't come to our defense? It's really sometimes, you know, the somersaults that we see in this part of the world. I do have a concern here, Peter, that in the Pentagon, especially over that Houthi attack, uh, there are louder and louder voices saying um, we have to respond. We have to do something. We're letting this go by. The usual conversation, our reputation will be damaged. There's a real tug of war inside the Biden administration right now. Um, if, they, if the Houthis try it one more time in exactly that way, um, that's the one thing that could trigger a U.S. response, frankly, if they engage U.S. forces. Well, you know, the the Americans have reacted once. It's going to be a little hard to, you know, if the Houthis, you know, push yeah. it again for the Americans to say, well, we're not going to do anything this time. That's right. Um, so the level's gone up here. The level of the yeah. game has gone up, harder to control. Are the, you know, the, the Russians obviously have their own issues in Ukraine, and we'll get to that later, but are the Russians or the Chinese, how are they looking at, at this situation in the Middle East, and what, if anything, are they doing? So, who knows? Let me put it to you that way, right? Because there's so much behind the scenes stuff. What China has done throughout this is hope that this de-escalates. Um, it doesn't really want to see the U.S. come in as a major player here. Um, first of all, it, you know, it gets in the way of Chinese exports, Chinese trade, a stable global economy, which China really needs right now because it's struggling domestically to restart its economy. So it really doesn't want a blow up at this time. Um, China also um, has very good relations with Saudi Arabia. And with the other Gulf states, it imports oil as well as with Iran, and it has a technology relationship with Israel. So it is trying to stand just a bit back, not get drawn in, not get embroiled, and is hoping that this does not escalate and blow. Russians, of course, are in a very different spot. They would love to see this escalate. Um, it, As we've all seen, it has taken the world's attention away from Ukraine. It's made it more difficult um, to, to sustain support for Ukraine in the U.S. Congress. Any kind of hot war in this part of the world just pulls attention further away from Ukraine. So I suspect the Russians are, are doing their best to tell Iran how high the stakes are here. The key, the key player ultimately is the Iranians. You know, just just to uh, share with our listeners, listeners, how um, unbelievable the dance is sometimes, Peter. If you just pay attention to two conversations that happen 
in the last week, you have to scratch your head, right? Uh, one, um, in the Iranians said explicitly, oh, no, 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 we didn't know anything about this war. Um, Hamas never told us. <laughs> we don't know anything about this. This is all Hamas. Um, everybody got the signal. They're standing way back. They don't want an escalation. And then an Iranian official said this week, well, you know, this escalation that's going on in the Gulf, it's because Israel killed an Iranian general in Syria on the ground, General Musavi, and everybody attended that funeral. It took Hamas literally five hours to say, that's not true. <laughs> the Houthis are in this to help us. That is absolutely untrue. And that official statement disappeared from the Iranian website. <laughs> if we think there's noise and confusion in Washington, the only reassuring thing is, there's noise and confusion in Tehran and in Yemen and in Eastern right. Yunus. But conversely, that's not reassuring at all. Well, that's <laughs> there's not confusion on, on on both sides. Let me yeah. let me take it to Israel for a minute because here I am confused um, by what's happened in the you know, really just in the last couple of days. You've got you've got Netanyahu saying we're going to stay in this. For the long haul, we're here for months, and we're going to keep pushing uh, for months longer. And you've got generals saying the same, Israeli generals saying the same thing. Then at the same time, they announce a troop withdrawal. Yeah. Now, I guess you can look at this two different ways. They've kind of cleared the north, northern end of Gaza, and those troops need a rest. Um uh, you know, a little R&R before they go back at it in the south. There are lots of troops in the south there as well, and it's it's bitter and bloody fighting that's going on in there. Um, but the signal looked for a moment anyway, and maybe it still does, that the Israelis are prepared to start backing off. You are right. It is the second. You have to take a lot of what Netanyahu now is saying now as an effort to keep his extremist right-wing allies in his government. In fact, um, the Israelis made a commitment to Biden. They are going to start to draw down forces and withdraw them from Gaza. They took out Five battalions, that is a, that's a significant number out. They sent another reserve unit home for 30 days rest. I doubt it is ever coming back, Peter. This is the beginning of phase three of the war that the Biden administration has pushed for. You withdraw back over the borders and you engage in the targeted raids that you and I have talked about. That's where we're going now, and it's about on schedule. Um, and he made that commitment privately to President Biden in order to release the pressure that was on him. So what impact will that have? Well, if you there, if you look, you, you, you also, I think, rightly made the point, which is not getting attention in the news for a whole variety of reasons. There's fierce fighting going on 
um, in Gaza. So what you have is Hamas fighters that are coming out of the tunnels, engaging Israeli troops on the ground. Most of the civilians, frankly, um, have struggled, as you know, to get out of the way. And they are out of the way. But there's fierce fighting even in parts of the north. Um, I think there will be an all-out push by the remaining Israeli forces that are there to engage fighters to destroy as many tunnels as they can. But ultimately, this is going to wind down um, in the next two or three weeks. And then there will be, frankly, um, a go after the leader strategy which you target the Hamas leaders. And if you think about it, Peter, fundamentally it means it's going to be very hard for them to come out of the tunnels. Or wherever they are. Or wherever they are, because nobody really knows where they are. Right. Whether they're even in Gaza. I mean, we know some of them aren't. But we we can assume that the Israelis, given their past, will be tracking them wherever they are, the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. So you think we're into the moment of that shift away from yes. the widespread, you know, clearing of neighborhoods down to the more specific targeting of of leaders wherever Absolutely. they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Now there are still it was an interesting estimate, and who knows? Who knows? Because we don't have eyes on the ground in a very meaningful way. So if you look at the number of Hamas brigades. Roughly 30. Three are, in fact, completely disabled. 11 are still capable of mounting some resistance, but they're having communication coordination problems. That's 14. And another 12 are now engaged in active fighting. So, in a sense, this is far from the Israeli claim that they were going to destroy even the military capability of Hamas, which is the goal they announced at the beginning of the war. Have they inflicted significant damage? Yes. We don't know how large that tunnel infrastructure is. We don't know what proportion of it has been destroyed. A significant chunk has what proportion. So this is what you would say, goals partly accomplished. That's it. Um, But time has run out. Well, time has run out in terms of support. Yeah. um, International support. Absolutely. And time has run out in terms of, of, of the really more than run out, frankly, Peter, the really dire condition in which Palestinians living in Gaza find themselves. Um, the urgent necessity for food and water to go in. Um, time has run out from that perspective. Time has run out from the perspective of international support. And Biden's signaling clearly their primary starting. Right. Right. Time has run out. So it was a predictable calendar. And that's why people talked about over and over and over again. End of December, beginning of January. And that's where we are. Let me ask you a question about Netanyahu before we uh, leave the Middle East. Um, You know, you and I have watched this guy for 30, 40 years. And and the analytical world is littered with the uh, the thoughts of analysts, <laughs> past and present, who have written this guy off before. 
right? I did it a few times. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, we all have. And I, you know, a month ago, there was, there was nobody giving him a chance of surviving this. Is it any different today? Let's, let's, let's paint two scenarios here, right? The fighting diminishes and enough pressure builds inside the country to say, well, we're not going to wait for the end of these targeted raids across the border. Um, and, and in fact, we're seeing already one of these commissions has been appointed by the attorney general in order to start this process going. But let's say the, uh, any kind of commission to us to look at the multiple failures that occurred um, at the intelligence level, the defense level, and the political level. Nine months, ten months. What time of year is that? That's the election in the United States. Um, who wins that election? Right? We get two different results for Netanyahu depending on who wins that election. If it's Biden, it's one result because he's already been pushing him on breaking up that coalition and thinking hard about the future of, of, of a Palestinian state. Another world if Trump wins that election. So I could categorize Netanyahu as one of those leaders hanging on, along with Vladimir Putin, hanging on and hoping for a Trump victory. All right. Um, we're going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll get more to uh, to Putin, uh, specifically in terms of the Ukraine and how this year starts off with that situation. Uh, and we'll also throw you um, one of your favorite kind of questions uh, before we leave today, which is the sort of what are what are we missing? You know, like, where, where are we not talking about that we should be talking about? But first, uh, this quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back, back to our uh, our first The Bridge episode of 2024. Janice Stein is with us, and we're looking at all the things that Janice Stein looks at and uh, and helps us try to understand. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, all right, uh, Ukraine, Russia. Um, you know, things look like they were on the... Like, look like we were heading... Clearly to stalemate territory and possible talks and all of this just a couple of weeks ago. Now we're into like heavy duty fighting, big time fighting and huge casualties, you know, on, on both sides, but specifically on the Russian side, the, the numbers of dead and wounded over 300,000 yeah. is the kind of accepted figure. It's just like unbelievable. I know the Russians have, know how to take casualties. They've certainly proven that in, in wars past, but these are incredible numbers. Uh, as this year starts, as we uh, are about to enter the third year of this war, what um, what's your assessment of where we are? Because it looks like we're really back at it. Well, this, you're, you're absolutely right. We are back at it, Peter, but we're back at it with Russia having momentum. Right now, despite the terrible casualties it's taken, um, 
everybody knows, I think, about those air attacks, um, widespread air attacks throughout Ukraine, the 29th, 30th of December. Why did these matter? They actually broke through Ukrainian air defenses. You know, Ukraine miraculously, without fighter aircraft, put together a patchwork of defenses that shot down um, Russian missiles throughout most of this war. Russia held back, experimented, figure probed Ukrainian defenses. And what made that attack so significant? They gave you, that attack was what you might call an a la carte um, version of an air attack. Drones, hypersonic missiles, ballistic missiles coming in different waves, designed in effect to overwhelm Ukrainian air defenses. And that's what it did. That's a game changer. Um, for Ukraine, if Russia is able to do that. Um, Ukraine needs additional missiles. It needs additional ammunition. It will not be able to sustain the front line. That's why you're seeing the heavy fighting along the front line. The Russians have not advanced on that front line, but if Ukraine has to operate without a capacity to shield its cities, and even to shield this fighting forces, um, that will pose the most significant challenge to Ukraine that it's faced in the war up to now. Right from the word go, you remember that early attack on the airport in those first three days? Uh-huh. Ukraine never, never shield, never yielded air supremacy entirely to the Russians. So Ukraine has the Zelensky and Zelensky. These people are very, very worried at this point. But at the so sa- it's not a stable front. That's no. not what's happening. But at the same time, the Ukrainians have made headway in two areas. Uh, certainly yep. the use of drones and, and their attacks on, on certain Russian installations. And in particular, on Russian uh, on the Russian Navy. Yeah. So both sides have broken through in different ways, right? Right. So Ukraine has managed to clear the Russian blockade. It is now, again, shipping grain through the Black Sea. Russia's had to pull back its famous fleet from Sevastopol, which is, again, huge humiliation. So in a way, what are we seeing, Peter? We are seeing what you often see when you think that some sort of negotiations are going to happen, when there may be some kind of ceasefire. You push hard. You go all out to improve your position on the battlefield in the expectation that there will be some sort of political negotiation. Um, I'm reasonably cautious about this um, because I think that Vladimir Putin is gaming the U.S. election. Uh, he will wait it out because, again, think about it. If if there is a Trump presidency, what he will be able to get at the table will be so much better than if there's a Biden presidency. Why would you go to the table before November the 5th? And, you know, when Trump says they can, he'll have it wrapped up in 24 hours. One day. So you don't one even day. need a table. You just, uh, you know, he'll be on the phone and that'll be it. The war will end. Um, you know, I, we, as we watch the Middle East, we watch the role that uh, Qatar played. The talks in Doha and the, the, 
the support of the uh, Qatari government in in doing those talks. It, is there a cutter in the Ukraine Russia story? There is. The question is whether Xi Jinping wants to pick up that ball and play the role, right? Because I I know many many people think that. Uh, Xi Jinping was such a disappointment when this war broke out that he didn't use all the influence he has, which is enormous with Putin, frankly, uh, to get Putin to stop the fighting. But he remains the world leader with the best relationship with Vladimir Putin and with a significant relationship with the United States were he to decide and and that's not completely out of the question this is not you know a mad fantasy uh because he wants to position china as the peacemaker he you know he got the iranians and the saudis together to resume diplomatic relations so this is a role that xi jinping would like for china and if anybody's positioned to do this in 2024 um it it will be Xi Jinping score huge points in Washington. Um, and in that relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping, it is so unbalanced. <laughs> Putin needs him so badly. And Putin uh, and, and Xi Jinping only needs Putin because they're joined in their dislike of domineering the United States that tries to export its global values. That's what brings those two together. Not much more. Uh, you know, I hear you suggesting how this would be a smart thing, a good thing for him to do, Xi Jinping. Is there any indication that he is? No. <laughs> no, 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 nothing, nothing. He sent no signals. There's no back channel stuff that I'm aware of that's going on. Okay. He got us all excited there for a minute. Okay. Last question. Um, and this is the question that deals with uh, one of your uh, pet issues, pet peeves, uh, pet projects, which is what are we missing? What are we missing today uh, with our focus as it has been just as it's been in the last half hour on those two areas of the world. What are we missing? So one of the stories, Peter, uh, that we're missing is this incredible um, intensification of a civil war uh, inside Sudan. It's it's a remarkable story that most of our listeners will remember because they will remember Darfur uh, when that was in the headlines. We've had the complete breakdown of a relationship between uh, two generals. There are now um, something like you can't put a real number on it, but you know, hundreds of thousands of dead in the civil war hundreds of thousands no cameras there no eyes on it um the janjaweed which we all remember went into darfur at that time and frankly committed genocide their successors the rapid uh, support forces are back in darfur there is intense killing going on um not much humanitarian aid and, you know, if you're in that part of the world and you look at the media attention 
that has gone rightly so to Gaza, for sure. But functionally, there's the equivalent and greater uh, immiseration and death and killing in that war. And you get a squib of a paragraph uh, on the back page of our newspapers. Yeah, I know know we've tried to touch on this at times, both with you and with Sam Nutt, who's been in there with War Child. Um, but, you know, what's the bottom line, Janice? Why, why why do we ignore it? Is it as simple as, gee, they're black and the other areas that we're focused on are white? I think that's a real element. I think there's a real element of that. And take that up a level, Peter. It's There's, oh, another civil war in Africa, right? We're doing it again. Uh, there's a coming famine now in Ethiopia. Uh, well, you know how Brian uh, yeah. intervened and played a role uh, in that. But so there's a sense of 40, oh, no, 40 years again. ago, 40 years 40 ago, 40 years now. ago, 84 right. in Ethiopia. Yeah. Right. So there is that. And then I think there's a third element to this. Um, if you look at the two that we paid so much attention to, Ukraine is Europe. Right. And so. Uh, It's easy for people in Europe and North America to identify, and and Russia's been such a longstanding preoccupation. And then there's the Middle East. (laughs) You know, uh, from, you know, all your years, you know, we never take our eyes off the Middle East. Is that because it's the intersection of Islam, Christianity, Judaism that we pay as much attention to it disproportionately in comparison literally to what's happening next door. It's hard to explain, but it's a long-standing practice that we, the cameras are there, the eyes are there, the pictures are always there. And the pictures can, can govern conversation, you know, uh, so much in, in our world today. Listen, um, you know, I'm glad you raised it again, Janice, uh, the, the Sudan situation, and we will come back. Yeah, we'll come back to it, um, and we'll come back to you again. Another uh, fascinating conversation. What a what a conversation to, you know, begin yet another year with. God, let's hope that by the end of this year that we're not talking about these two areas in particular plus Sudan. Anyway, for now, that'll be it, but we'll talk to you again uh, in a week's time. Thanks, Janice. A pleasure, Peter, and Happy New Year to you and to everyone who's listening. And you too. Well, there you have it. Our first conversation of uh, 2024 with uh, Janice Stein from the Monk School at the University of Toronto. Um, Dr. Stein's take on on where we are as this this new year begins. And it's, you know, we, we tended to focus on two areas and in uh, adding Sudan as well, but we tried to put it in the perspective of we're looking at a global situation here because as this, as these wars expand, um, we are getting into a more and more difficult situation. So the question was, are they expanding? Well, you heard Dr. Stein's answer on that. All right. Um, always glad to hear your thoughts on uh, on these conversations that we have. And we're trying to have them once a week. They will be on Mondays once we get back to a normal schedule. Um, so next week, Mondays with Dr. Stein. Um, and I think we're gonna we're gonna try and include 
one element of this, what are we missing in each of our discussions uh, this year? Because there are lots of other places as well where there are issues that could have an impact globally, and some already are. So we'll have that discussion with Dr. Stein uh, in the weeks ahead. So we'll, we'll try to always include a what are we missing element. Um, okay. Um, I want to clear up one thing that I might have left a little clouded earlier, and that's about tomorrow. Uh, as we move forward, Wednesdays will be a kind of best of uh, edition, except this week, because we're already in a shortened week. Uh, so tomorrow we will have something. What it'll be, I'm not sure. But we'll try to uh, we'll try to find something that you may find of interest uh, to uh, to think about to discuss. And then Thursday, once again, I just remind you now because I'm sure some of you were writing as you were listening here um, to enter that uh, contest for your turn this week. And so the your turn angle this week, the question for your turn this week is: if you had the chance, if you had the ability to change one thing about our political system. What would that change be? All right. And once again, this is, this is not an opportunity to go, sort of go personal, you know, get rid of this person or get rid of that person. It's not about people as much as it is about the process, about the system. If you could change one thing, what would that one thing be? And we're not looking for like a radical, uh, you know, end of capitalism. You know, let's... Let's do that. Let's go to a dictatorship. Well, I don't know. You tell me. What is the one thing you would like to change about our system? Okay? So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see what you have to say on that front. And, you know, this is the opportunity for those who've never written before to jump in and write. We have a lot of repeat writers every week. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we like to see new ideas, new thoughts, new people in this process of your turn as well. So start writing the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. That's it. Our first show of 2024. Lots more to come as we venture into a year. Who knows what's going to happen? in this year as it unfolds. Okay, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in a mere 24 hours. (laughs) 